Good to see you here. If you turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting a new Christmas series here this morning. And it's good to see your smiling faces. If uh, you're new uh, here this morning, or you're watching online, or listening online, I'm Pastor Lucas Cunningham. And uh, man, we're so glad that you are here uh, with us. Um, Something I want to do a little bit different. I've been thinking about this, and you know, we kind of live in a world that that um, doesn't always respect the Word of God, and the Word of God is just that. It's God's Word to us, and, and, and though other pastors have done this, I want to do something a little bit different moving forward. I want us to show honor in respect to the word. Not that we weren't before. I don't, want, I don't want you to think that. But just a way that we can just show honor and respect that on the opening passage, let's all stand together if you can. If you can't, that's okay. But let's all stand together while I read the opening passage and then you can sit down uh, together. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. And you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I am a virgin. And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby will be born to be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Once more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. And people used to say she was barren, but she was conceived in a son and is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Then the angel left her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thankful that we can come together and read your word, preach from it, teach from it, and then we can worship you. Lord, we are thankful that you came, that you were born, that you lived a sinless life, that scripture was fulfilled, and yet it's still yet to be fulfilled. And that one day you are coming back again for your church, for your children. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here's the question I want us, that I want to ask here this morning. Is, does the virgin birth really matter? Does the virgin birth really matter? And I was watching, I came across this on YouTube a while back. It was a YouTube channel, and it was titled, Scammer Loses Everything to Ransomware Virus. And I'm like, I always like a good story of revenge. Click. I mean, who doesn't? 
The scammer, who pretends to be a tech support uh, person or worker, often tries to prey on the elderly. And these scammers will tell elderly uh, couples or, or people their computer has a virus and will send them, they'll send them you know, X amount of money or they will send them, um, you know, whatever. And, and so they, they, they really kind of prey on different, different people. And that all they have to do is to buy Google Play cards and send it to them. Interesting. And it's a scam. And sadly, many people pray for it. Well, this guy, this YouTuber named um, Kite Boga, is his name, decided, uh, I'm sure it's not his real name, uh, decided to teach that these, th- this tech support um, scammer a lesson. So for two or three hours, he spoke in a voice of a grandmother. Very well, by the way. And he's also a hacker. And he hacked the scammer and deleted all his files on his computer. And the scammer is freaking out about his files. And then then Kubota starts to describe what the scammer is wearing and where they're at and what it looks like in the room. And he's freaking out. And it was great. <laughs> like, yeah. That's what you get for calling me at 11 o'clock at night, right? And it got me thinking, when it comes to the Christmas story, when it comes to the virgin birth, if the virgin birth does not matter, Christianity does not matter. Now, maybe you're like, okay, wait a second, preacher. I'm not sure about the virgin birth. I'm not sure about, about, about that. I mean, that's something that sounds impossible. How can a virgin give birth? And really, does a virgin birth really, truly matter? And I find it interesting that people choose parts of the Bible to accept as true. But when it comes to the virgin birth, some reject the miracle. And it was a miracle. And the argument is this, is that as long as I believe in Jesus... The rest doesn't really matter. Some will think that. But that rationale doesn't, isn't logical. You see, apart from the virgin birth, Jesus would have just been another man and therefore unworthy of anyone's faith. Consider the implications of this when it comes to Mary. If she were not a virgin, what reading is not true. And by the way, what's neat about Scripture is Luke who was a Gentile, he was not a Jew, um, he was a doctor, it appears, and um, he was one who had read more than likely Mark and Matthew and decided to investigate, and, and when you're reading the book of Luke, especially the first couple chapters, guess who he is interviewing? Mary. And when you read the book of Luke, when you read this, it puts a little different perspective um, uh, of when you're reading the book of Luke, of who he is talking to, who, who, who he is interviewing. But if Mary was not a virgin, here's the thing. One, she was a liar who claimed to have been visited by an angel and um, that would, she would bear the Son of God. Two, she was unfaithful to her future husband, if that was the case, if she truly was not a virgin. Thirdly, Jesus was an illegitimate child with no divine nature. Not only that, But the virgin birth was a lie. And then Jesus was a crazy man who claimed to be God. And we've seen it in our society. Either the Bible is correct, or as we've seen before in our own lives, crazy begets crazy. You ever notice that in families? 
You get a crazy mom or a crazy dad, or maybe both, you end up getting at least one crazy kid, right? We believe Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself the human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet, yet, yet without sin. Now he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's point number one, my friend. The virgin birth was a miracle. And when something is a miracle, can you completely explain it? No. And there are some things in the Bible that I can try to wrap my mind around, that I can try to figure out, but there are some things in the Bible I've come to the conclusion that I just don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't completely figure it all out. And that's okay, because of the many things that God has shown himself, that has revealed himself, I can see, I can study, I can understand. Jesus' birth was a result of the Holy Spirit working within Mary's body. The immaterial, the spirit, and the material, Mary's womb, were both involved. Mary, of course, could not impregnate herself, and she was simply a vessel that God wanted to use, and she was willing. And only God could perform the miracle of the incarnation. However, denying a physical connection between Mary and Jesus would imply that Jesus was not truly human. So Scripture teaches that Jesus was fully human, yet he was fully God. It's like saying that that. Right here is a cup of water, 100% cup of water, and over here is a um, cup of coffee, 100% cup of coffee, and yet he was both at the same time. You can put it this way. The scriptures plainly affirm that Jesus both knows all things as God and doesn't know all things as man. And that for his time he was here on earth, that, that his... Um, in his, as mankind, as a human, some of his, um, he did not cease to be all-knowing. He did not cease to be omnipotent. He, he didn't cease to be those sayings, but it was suppressed for a time by himself. The virgin birth was a miracle. The virgin birth was also this. It was foretold. And this is where we're going to hang out quite a bit. You see, over in Isaiah chapter 7, we see in Isaiah, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. See, God keeps his promise. The virgin Mary bore a son 2,000 years ago or so in Bethlehem. And we see the baby born and lowered into the hay for a resting place. The baby, as incredible as it seems, is God. The baby is God with us. Jesus, as our Emmanuel, is uh, his omnipresence, his uh, uh, omnipotence, perfection. I mean, the love that never fails with 
us. Now, Joseph didn't name him Emmanuel. But wait a second, thought his name was supposed to be Emmanuel. But Jesus' nature makes him truly Emmanuel, God with us. And that was the point. And that was the meaning. That God came down and dwelt with us. Mankind. All of us. How incredible, how special that is. In the book of Matthew, we also see this in Luke, but Matthew chapter 1, we see where the disciples make this connection with Isaiah. And they quote Isaiah. In fact, you know, when you read the New Testament, um, the, Old, the Old Testament scriptures are often quoted in the New Testament, connecting it, showing it. You see, the New Covenant, the New Testament, it was not a replacement of the, um, uh, of the Old Covenant. It, it replaced it, but it was a fulfillment. Jesus came and didn't destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. And so this is what it reads. It says, and she will have a son, talking about Mary, and you are uh, to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Christians, we point to this virgin birth as evidence of the messianic prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. And through the years, there have been people who have doubted what Isaiah chapter 7, what it speaks of when it comes to a virgin. In fact, some will look at Isaiah 7 and go, well, it really doesn't mean virgin. It really just means a young woman. Okay. Is that true? How do we take a look at this? Is there a rebuttal for this? Have we just been wrong? And that really doesn't mean virgin, but it just means young woman. And that you're really, it's just maybe it's just something more that is just kind of vague. It's something that's just kind of vague. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out before I explain here and break down a little bit Isaiah 7. That there are other passages in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to name a few of them, that I think are important for us to know about. And the first one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we have it here on the screen, Genesis 3, 15. And this is the first prophecy that we see in the scriptures. And this is right after Adam and Eve sinned. And, and what we see is that I will put enmity or a hatred between you and the woman. Who's the you? Well, it's referring to Satan in that context of that passage. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, why doesn't it say his seed? Talking about Adam. Here's the interesting thing when you look at diving into God's word, that sin nature is passed down through the male. Faith seems to be passed down through the mother. So you can look at the person next to you and, um, or, or call your father up today or if your father's here and go, thank you very much for making me a sinner. 
Don't do that. It's kind of mean. But biblically, it is true. Jesus had no human father. He had a heavenly father. It was a miracle. And God used the woman. Bruise your head. In reference to the serpent in which Satan had taken over, how do you kill a snake? Not by cutting off its tail, but by cutting off its head. The first prophecy. We see in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, concerning the Messiah and where he would be born. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Here's another incredible point in this passage. You see, oh yeah, okay, I recognize Bethlehem, but did you know in Israel there's not actually one Bethlehem? There's two. There was two back then, and there's two even today. God wanted to be so specific that there was no confusion which Bethlehem the Messiah would come out of. That's why it says Ephrathah. Being specific of no confusion of which Bethlehem the Messiah would come out of. And this was written about 450 years, 500 years prior. God's word is specific in this way. It gets even more specific though. And I also don't have enough time to dive completely into this But I want to give you enough. If you want to dive into it, you can. But it's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. And and it's a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah and also the the killing. They, They wouldn't know or the taking of the life of the Messiah. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which equal 69 weeks. And the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, give you a quick rundown. And some of you have studied this before. Maybe this is brand new to some of you. But God always counts time, typically, in this, when it comes to prophecy, when Israel is in favor and following God. And it is believed that we end up counting from the time in which the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in, in Nehemiah chapter 2. And Nehemiah was known for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And, and from chapter 2, you end up taking each one of these weeks, and each week being a, um, being a year, you end up with around 483 years, if my memory serves me correctly. And it, it's a prophecy of the 70 weeks. He said, but there's 69 weeks there, not 70. But there's one additional week, which many believe and connect it to the seven-year tribulation, in time in which God is going to use Israel again. And a lot of what we see going on in the Middle East, um, really, on one hand, 
we want to pray for Israel. But on the other hand, I'm excited because there's a lot of things pointing to uh, what prophecy talks about from Ezekiel 37 and 38. And, and, and really, if you want to watch prophecy, what's going on in our world, don't watch America. Watch Israel and watch what's going on. And eventually, eventually everyone will, in the world will turn their back on Israel. And I can never remember a time in our country where so many people, so many people, <clears throat> especially in our colleges, turning their back on Israel. It's so interesting. And this is not part of my message, but I want to add this. It boggles my mind that, that, that some on the liberal, liberal left that are so pro-Palestine and some of those in the homosexual community are so pro-Palestinian um, that, that you realize if you were to go over there and show that flag, they'd be okay with throwing you off a building to your death. Now, we may disagree with one another, but as Christians, we love you. We, we, we believe that, hey, you know, you have that free will. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not for that. But why would you want to support such a terrorist, ter terrorist organization? It boggles my mind a little bit. Anyway, I'm going to move on. Back to the virgin birth. Maybe someone has an answer for me. I don't know. But at a time in which you would be cut off. And when you end up looking at the dates, it's, now there's, there's some other things to look at. I'm not going to go on to it. But it puts you right around A.D. 30 to 38 in that range. And some, you know, tinker here, tinker there when it, when it comes to some of the dates. But it gets you right in that forecast of that time of the birth and death of Jesus Christ. Now back to, over to Isaiah chapter 7. Back to this, does this word really mean virgin? Did Christians just through the years decide, you know what, we're going to change Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 for it to mean virgin instead of young woman? Did Christians just come up and be like, hey, you know what, we need to change this according to what we need it to be changed so we can prove that, hey, Jesus was God with us, Emmanuel? It's a good question. It's, it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay. Uh, we're not intimidated by some of those questions. The word Alma is, is what it means to be young woman. A-L-M-A-H. And the meaning is young woman. It can mean virgin, as some young unmarried women in ancient Hebrew culture were assumed to be virgins. The word does not necessarily imply virginity. Alma occurs seven times in the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis 24, 43, Exodus 2, 8, Psalm 68, 25, Proverbs 30, 19, Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 3, and then chapter 6 and verse 8, and then, of course, here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. None of these instances demand the meaning virgin, but neither do they deny the possibility of meaning virgin. So there's no conclusive argument for Alma in Isaiah 7.14 being either vir a young woman or a virgin. Well, preacher, are you saying that it shouldn't be virgin? Not what I'm saying. Things get very interesting real quick. Just, just stay with me here for a moment. So <clears throat> during Jesus' day, they spoke Greek. In fact, the scriptures of that day would have been in Greek not in Hebrew. Why? Because more people were speaking in Cohen Greek. 
And what they realized was like, we need to be able to read the manuscripts. We need to be able to read the Bible. And so around um, the third century BC, so two, three hundred years before the birth of Christ, um, and they took this very, very seriously, they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Bible. It's known as the Septuagint. So there wasn't even Christianity at this time when they end up making this translation, including in the book of Isaiah. So these translators, 200 plus years before the birth of Christ, with no inherent belief in the virgin birth, translated Alma in Isaiah 7.14 as virgin and not young woman. And this gives us evidence that virgin is possible, even likely meaning of the term. And in fact, also with this term, and we see this in Scripture in the Old Testament, that some of the prophecies given were what we call double prophecies. They had two different meanings. And Isaiah 7, in fact, was written concerning um, King Ahaz and uh, declaring that Abram and Israel would not be successful in conquering Jerusalem. And the Lord offers Ahaz the opportunity to receive a sign. But Ahaz refuses to put God to the test, and God responds by giving the sign Ahaz should look for. The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. And in this prophecy, God is essentially saying that within a few years' time, Israel and Abram would be destroyed. So at first glance, Isaiah 7.14 has no connection with the promised virgin of the Messiah. However, the Apostle Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that it connects with the virgin birth. And this is a conclusion that I came to, that because Isaiah 7.14 is a dual prophecy, a double prophecy, that the, the, the correct, the correct for prophecy of referring to virgin is correct. And they understood those Septuagint scholars knew that it was a prophecy that was yet to come, but yet there was something that already happened. And so that's why that word itself could go both ways, because one would be referring to that day and age or the soon, you know, couple years time that, that his daughter was going to have a child or daughter-in-law and that as well, the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin. So what is the correct, the correct translation, virgin? It wasn't that Christians changed it. Man, it was changed correctly and translated correctly even before, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, and hundreds of years before there was anything known as Christianity you see, the virgin birth, it was necessary for redemption. No virgin birth equals no atonement. It equals us staying in our sin, that there is no payment for our sin. Someone had to come and die for our sin, and that's what Jesus did. He came and took our place. Now, it is wild to me thinking that, that Jesus, born of a virgin, God in the flesh, that he once was one, he once was three, that he was the perfect toddler. Could you imagine such a thing? If you've had kids, you've been around toddlers. 
We love you toddlers, but it's really the terrible twos and threes and kind of the fours a little bit. He was a perfect child. No child ever like him. Always obedient. Always doing what was right. He was a teenager. If you're a teenager and you wonder, man, does Jesus know what it's like to be a teenager? Absolutely. Does he know what it's like to have siblings? Scripture's clear. He had siblings. And it seems that his siblings didn't believe in him. Now, some of them later on did, like James and, and, and so on, but, um, but they, they, didn't, they didn't believe in him. Having family that doesn't believe in you, that didn't stop Jesus. He knew why he was here. I mean, the age of 12, age of 12, he's at the temple and he's teaching, and, and, the, and the scholars and the Pharisees of the day are like, what is this? Where does kid learn this? Imagine being Joseph and Mary. You know, you go and to give your sacrifice and you make that long trip and you're on your way back home and you go, where's Jesus? You're thinking he's playing with his friends. And you realize after a couple days, a couple days, you've lost Jesus, the Son of God. A God sent an angel to tell you, here's a gift, and you lose God. That is some pressure. You ever lost a kid? Maybe for a moment. Maybe for a moment. Maybe in the store. I remember once, I was talking about this the other day, Gracie's birthday was yesterday. We have a lot of birthdays in December. My wife's is the first, Gracie's the seventh, uh, second, uh, Nate is the seventh, and I have grandparents on the fourth, and then, I mean, you get all into it. It's a lot. But we were just talking the other day, and there was this one house we were living in, and my, uh, my in-laws were in town, and we decided we're going to play hide-and-seek. That's when they were little. They love hide-and-seek, Right? And Gracie, she's pretty good at hide-and-seek. And she's like three, four years old. And we can't find her. My wife has these visions of her running through the, um, um, through the cornfields behind our house. And like we've lost Gracie. She's in the woods somewhere. It's cold outside. And I start, I, I'm like, oh, whatever. I, I start looking. I can't find her. My mother-in-law starts working. We can't find her. Fifteen minutes. I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're going to have to call the cops that we've lost our kid playing hide-and-seek. And I go to go out the back door to, I'm like, now I'm like worried. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go in the back. I think she went outside, though. I didn't hear the door open. And I go to grab the door, and I look down, and we had these curtains by the door that were all the way down to the ground, and I can see a little pinky toe sticking out. I was relieved and angry all at the same time. I open it up. She looks at me with a big smile. I'm like, yeah, you won. You won. <laughs> We're done playing hide and seek for the day. We're going to do something else. Um, but Jesus, he was perfect. He was perfect. Unstained by sin. Set apart from sinners. He's called our high priest. He's one that identifies with us. He knows everything about us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer loss of friends, family who have passed away. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows. 
he has been in your shoes. Think about this. Jesus has been tempted beyond what any of us have ever been tempted. Because we, we are tempted and there's times we sin. He was tempted and he never sinned. Satan himself tempted Jesus. I doubt any of us had Satan himself tempt us. It would seem that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to Jesus, no virgin birth equals no atonement. We would be dead in our trespasses and sins. And all that we read in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Christ, of the Messiah who would come. It all points to him. You see, the Old Testament saints were saved the same way that we are today, by faith. Putting their faith in the one who would come. We, had our, we put our faith in the one who has come. You see, the virgin birth was unique. There are a number of people who claim that the accounts of Jesus as recorded in the New Testament are simply myths borrowed from pagan folklore, such as the stories of Osiris. Addis, Horus, and you could go on. There's, there's like four or five of them. Dan Brown um, claims in the Da Vinci Code, if you watch the Da Vinci Code, and there's some people who really actually think the Da Vinci Code is legit, like scholars wrote the movie or something. Um, it is not scholarly work. But this is what he said. Nothing in Christianity is original. Ooh, interesting. So let's break this down a little bit. And usually around Christmas or Easter, you end up seeing a graphic like this on social media. And it's one of Jesus and one of Horus. If you guys will show it here, I have, you probably have seen something like this before. I'm not going to read through these. I can't read it from here anyway. It's pretty small print. But you probably have seen something like this. And they'll take some other pagan gods and they'll try to connect it and try to show like, hey, see, there was a movie years ago called uh, Zeitgeist that made the claim about Horus and, and, and Jesus Christ, that really Christianity is just a, man, they just kind of robbed Horus of, what, of his story and boom, you have Jesus. Interesting. And here's the thing, maybe you're new to Christian, maybe you're new to church, and you've, you've seen this, you've heard this. I have had people ask me about this who, who really go to church much, like, yeah, but man, didn't, didn't Christianity just steal from Horus? And they just take it at face value because they saw it on Facebook. And maybe you've seen this, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of it before. But I want to address this. I want to address this because it seems to be something that's pretty popular. And so... Um, and what the claim is in this movie, and also on what you're seeing, is that, that Horus was born on December 25th of a virgin, Isis, Mary. A star in the east proclaimed his arrival. Three kings came to adore the newborn Savior. He became a child prodigy at the age of 12. At the age of 30, he was baptized and began a ministry. Horus had 12 disciples. Horus was betrayed. He was crucified. He was buried for three days. He was resurrected after three days. This is what you see. This is what is presented as fact. But is it fact? Is there anything close to it? And this is, this is, what, this is 
what you end up finding. When you end up going and looking and reading, when it comes to the writings about Horus, when they are examined, this is the actual truth. Horus was born to Isis. There's no mention in history of her ever being called Mary. Moreover, Mary is our angelicized form of her real name, Miriam. And Mary was not even used in the original text of Scripture. In fact, Jesus is real. They would have called Jesus Yeshua anyway. Isis was not a virgin. She was a widow of um, Osiris and uh, conceived Horus with Osiris. Horus was born in the month of Kiak, which is October, November, not December 25th. And then you might go, well, Jesus wasn't born December 25th either. You're right. He more than likely he was born in the springtime, some think April, some May, and why don't we you know, have celebrate Jesus in December? Well, they choose, chose December 25th, different reasons throughout history. I'm just glad we celebrate Jesus. Amen? And if it's on the 25th, that's fine. I do think it's interesting that on December 25th is the day where we have the most darkness and the least amount of light. And I'm like, you know what? That's kind of a good day to celebrate Jesus. In all the darkness, we have the true light, the light of life in Jesus. Now, there is no record, uh, one, in Scripture of Jesus' actual birth date. There's no record of three kings visiting Horus at birth. The Bible never states the actual number of the wise men who came. We thank three because of three gifts. Some think it may have been more. We don't know. But the Bible never claims. Horus is not a savior in any way. He didn't die for anyone. There's no accounts of Horus being a teacher. Like When you end up going back to the writings, there's no history of him being a teacher at age of 12. There's no records of him being baptized. The only account of Horus that involves water is one where Horus is torn to pieces with Isis requesting the crocodile god to fish him out of the water. I don't think that requires... That has anything to do with baptism. Horus did not have a ministry. He did not have 12 disciples. According to Horus' accounts, he, Horus had four demigods that followed him, and they are some indicators that 16 human followers and an unknown number of blacksmiths uh, went to battle with him. There's no account of Horus ever being betrayed by a friend. There's, he did not die by the way of crucifixion. There are various accounts of Horus' death, but none of them involve crucifixion. There is no account of Horus being buried for three days. Horus did not resurrect. There is no account of Horus coming out of the grave with the body that he went in with. Really, what you have today when it comes to Horus is someone, and he was behind it ultimately, is Satan, who is the master of all lies, going, you know what? I just want to mess with Christians. I want to mess with people. I'm going to put a lie out there that people will just believe it's the truth. And if I put it out there enough, people will believe it. And listen, truth be known, some of you believe that. You just didn't know any better. You didn't investigate. You didn't look. And so... As a pastor, sometimes I don't really like to get some of my illustrations off Facebook, but when trash like that is passed around and people believe it to be truly true from a movie or from social media, the easiest way to disprove a lie is simply to put down the truth next to it. And it shows it clearly shows it clearly, and it's not true. I did find someone that was true, though. I hope it helps you out a lot. 
There's a quote by Abraham Lincoln, very impactful. The problem with quotes found on the internet is that they are often not true. <laughs> Amazing. What a prophet. <laughs> Two can play that game, right? The Jesus is a myth theory relies on selective descriptions, redefined words, and false assumptions. <clears throat> and here this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with him? And maybe you're like, okay, preacher, I hear your message, and I, I don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe something different. I believe something else. When Brother Austin mentioned last week in his message, when it came to the resurrection, we can apply this to the virgin birth as well. That as a Christian, if we're wrong about the virgin birth, Scripture has helped us love mankind, be a good citizen, be a good father, a good mother. And if we're wrong, it's still a pretty good life lived. But if you're wrong about the virgin birth, and we're right about the virgin birth, and as Christians, we've gained everything, and my friend, you've lost everything, and yet you've heard the truth. And there will be more attacks over and over concerning the resurrection, the virgin birth, and Jesus himself and God's word. What's so interesting is that if there truly was a Horus, why, why didn't the Greeks know about him? Oh, well, what do you mean, Pastor? And as we wrap this up, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is there in Athens and he's speaking with them. And, he, and this is what he says. He seems to be... He seems to be a proclaimer of the strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Aragapus and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know the, what these things mean. These men were the top-tier philosophers of that day. If there's anyone who knew, I mean, they, they were so sensitive of knowing about the gods, they had a statue for the unknown God. And as he is telling them about this Jesus and the resurrection, they're like, we've never heard this before. And if a Horus or anyone else equivalent of that day that Christianity was copied from, these men would have known about it. But it wasn't there. Because what I just mentioned to you is true. The stuff about Horus and Jesus and Horus being some, someone that Christianity just copied from just doesn't. It doesn't add up. There once was a man 
who did not believe in the virgin birth of Christ or the spiritual meaning behind, behind it. He didn't understand all the focus on Jesus at Christmas time. He was even skeptical there was a God who loved him. He and his family lived in a beautiful farming community. His wife was a devout believer and diligently raised their children in the faith. He sometimes gave her a hard time about her belief and mocked her reverence of Christmas. It's all nonsense. Why would God come down and be like us? Why would he lower himself and become human like us? It's such a silly idea, such a silly story. One snowy December day, his wife and the children left for church while he stayed home. And after they had departed, the winds grew stronger, the snow turned into a blinding snowstorm, and he sat and he relaxed beside the fire as he looked out his back window. He heard a loud thump. Something was hitting against the window, and still another thump. And he looked outside, and he couldn't, couldn't see anything, but he ventured outside for a better view. And in the field near his house, he saw, of the strangest of things, a flock of geese. They were apparently flying to look for warmer weather down south. But they had gotten caught. They had gotten caught in a snowstorm. And the storm had become too blinding, too violent for these geese to fly or to see their way. And they were stranded on his farm with no food, no shelter. And so his heart went out to them. He loved animals. So he thought to himself, if I could just find a place to stay for them. You know what? I have my barn. I'll open the door and I will try to shoo them in. So he opened the barn door to give them some protection to try to shoo them in and it didn't work. He thought, well, maybe they're hungry. And so he took some breadcrumbs. He kind of cleared a path and put some breadcrumbs to help lead them into the barn. And yet they still wouldn't go. They still wouldn't budge. So he starts to get frustrated. They get frustrated and, and they the geese start to panic and they go every direction except the barn and feeling completely frustrated he he thought to himself why don't they follow me can't they see this is the only place where they can survive the storm how can i possibly get them into this one place to save them he thought for a moment and realized they would just not follow a human he said to himself, how can I possibly save them? The only way for me to become like, uh, to, to save them is become like one of the geese. If only I could become like one of them, then I could save them. Then they would follow me and I could lead them to safety. And his words reverberated in his mind. If only I could become like one of them, I could save them. And suddenly, everything his wife had lived. Everything his wife had said in front of him, it filled his heart, it filled his mind. And Jesus became a man to save mankind. And he fell to his knees in the snow and he gave his life to Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that if you don't know him at this Christmas season, you will bow the knee and give your life to Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and your life, my friend, will never be the same. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for saving us. There's not one of us here in this room that deserves your grace, that deserves to be saved. But you love us. You came down, lived like us, ate like us, breathed like us in order to save us. Lord, I pray that anyone watching, anyone here, Maybe they know the Christmas story. Maybe the Christmas story is still brand new to them. But they're uncertain about their salvation. They're uncertain if they would spend eternity in heaven. I pray that they can get that assurance here this morning. If that's you, you can give your life to Christ today. How do you give your life to Christ? Repent. Repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus, and he will save you. He will change you. You may think to yourself, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not clean enough. My friend, none of us ever are. You never will be. God loves you just the way you are. Let him do the cleaning. Come to him and he'll do the rest. You can pray with me this morning. Pray, dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Lord and Savior. If you prayed and asked Christ this morning, please get in contact with me. I'd love to rejoice with you. Maybe you're here this morning. You haven't been taking your faith seriously. It's time for you to refocus as we go into 2024 to live your life for the Lord. We don't know how much time we get here on earth. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back. He's coming again. We all will stand before him and give an account for this life, and I pray that we're ready. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.